Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hey everybody, it's a little bit different because I'm starting the show today. I'm Phil Edwards. And I'm Mike Spring. And you're listening to After the Ending, and it's a Halloween episode. Yes, it's our annual Halloween episode. I'm super excited to get into it. Phil, have you been watching any uh, any good scary movies lately to to get in the mood for Halloween? Uh, I've been watching The Exorcist TV show, which is uh, Ah, very creepy. Very cool. uh, I've I've got a few planned that I'm going to be watching. Uh, I always watch The Thing. Of course. uh, Coming up to Halloween. And of course, John Carpenter's Halloween, because you've got to watch Halloween on Halloween. You kind of do, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a given. Cool. And I've got a few more surprises that I might surprise myself with. Nice. And there's always, you know, streaming. I think Netflix and Amazon Video have got uh, a load more horror movies on there I'm going to try and watch. Sure, sure. What about you? What have you got lined up? Uh, well, I, I just last night I watched uh, Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 version uh, by Zack Snyder, which I think is, is definitely Zack Snyder's best film. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Well, I quite like 300 as well, but no, I like this uh, redo of... Dawn of the Dead. I know not everybody did, but I think it's fantastic. I, yeah. I watched it. Again. I watched it last night, and I, I have to say, I really loved it. I mean, I loved it the first time I saw it, but it's been a long time. I don't think I've watched it uh, since it came out, and I think it's just really terrific. And it's funny to me because I think Zack Snyder gets these really well developed and well rounded, lifelike characters in this film about you know the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah. And then in all of his other films, like the the, the Superman movies, he takes these characters who have this depth of 75 years of character and he <laughs> turns them into the Living Dead. Uh it makes his characters uh, no, yeah, completely yeah. lifeless. I don't I don't understand it. I think that's a valid point, yeah. I can I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Yeah, it's like it's like, you know, I give him I I love Dawn of the Dead. I love 300 and then it's just like he fell off a cliff at that point. I don't know what happened. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was thinking we, we should have done Dawn of the Dead, the remake, uh, for t- for this episode because it is a perfect ending for and after the ending. But I think we'll do that. We'll save that for next year. So so here is our earliest preview ever. <laughs> next Halloween, we're going to be doing an after the ending for Dawn of the Dead 2004 remake. You heard it here first. Although I foresee using my, you know, uh, my time machine that uh, next year we'll be recording the Halloween episode and we'll be doing another film. And then just as we're doing the intro, one of us will go, oh, no, we're meant to be doing Dawn of the Dead this time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually pretty likely. Yeah. But the plan is, so join us next year for After the Endings Halloween special. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to hold, we're going to put the podcast on hold for an entire year yeah. just until just so we, we don't can forget. get that one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, why don't you... Uh, why don't you tell people what we will be doing? Uh, we have a really exciting jam-packed episode uh, for, for Halloween this year. So tell our listeners what we have in store for them. Okay, yes, we will be going after the ending of just one film. But what a film it is. It's the uh, 1968 adaptation of Ira Levin's novel of the same name. It is Rosemary's Baby. A true classic, if ever yes. there was one. Yes, and that slow dread that constantly grows as you're watching the film is... It's fantastic. And we'll also be doing our top 10, our favorite top 10 horror movies of the 1990s, because last year we did our favorite horror movies of the 1980s. So, you know, different decade. Right. And we've also got a few interviews coming up later in the episode. Uh, Mike, do you want to let everybody know what uh, will be coming up? Them. Yeah, well, at New York Comic Con a couple weeks ago, I was lucky enough to interview the cast and creators of uh, Lore, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. It's a six-episode series based on the super popular Lore podcast, uh, and it's kind of like a, a who's who of horror superstars. I mean, we talk with, well, first of all, Robert Patrick, who, of course, played the T-1000 in Terminator 2, Classic. one of the best movie villains ever. Yeah. Uh, we talk with Kristen Bauer, who was a regular on True Blood, a great horror-themed show, uh, Gail Ann Hurd who's the producer behind The Walking Dead, uh, and Holland Roden, who's an actress on MTV's Teen Wolf show, and Aaron Mankey himself, who is the creator of the Lore podcast. So, I mean, really, it's a pretty fine horror pedigree, and we're going to talk to all of them about this cool new show that's on Amazon. So, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty fun. And we'll tell you about our lore experience as well. Wow, that was creepy. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, it was good fun. But before we get to those, we do have to tackle Rosemary's Baby, although we're not actually going to tackle Rosemary's Baby because they tend to frown on people when you tackle babies. That doesn't go over well. So. And if we did try and tackle Rosemary's Baby, it would probably, you know, beat the crap out of us. Probably end badly for us because, yeah, yeah. you know, he might or might not be the Antichrist. Well, yeah. we're going to reveal that actually uh, right now. So <laughs> Spoilers Phil, ahead. Spoilers yes. ahead for Rosemary's Spoilers Baby. Ahead. Yeah, if you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, I, you know, I know it's from 1968 and maybe you're like, oh, I'm, I'm more into the modern horror movies, but this one really is fantastic. It is uh, just one of those classics like The Exorcist that is just creepy and engaging and th- and exciting and thrilling and it just builds towards this amazing climax. I, I, I really do recommend watching it if you haven't seen it yet yes and i'm, I'm just going to do a, a brief introduction well a brief roundup of the film because you know it's a, it's an old film most of you will have seen it and and even if not most of you know the, the concept yeah. behind it so it's yeah because it's a, it's that age-old concept which we all yeah. know and love right <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's directed by uh, roman polanski and as i say it was adapted from the novel by uh, written by ira levin stars mia farrow john cassavetes uh ruth gordon who won uh, an oscar for her supporting role and also featured the film debut of Charles Grodin, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. But I quite like that. So it's basically about a young couple, Rosemary and Guy, played by Mia Farrow and John Cassavetti, move into the Bramford building in New York City, uh, only to be surrounded by peculiar neighbours, the Castavets, and strange goings-on. Then the wife suddenly, well, not suddenly, obviously, but she becomes mysteriously pregnant, and then she starts to get a bit paranoid because the neighbours and her husband all act strange, and she's given these strange root things to drink, make tea out of and drink, and she starts not feeling well and she thinks everybody's talking about her and around her uh, and then she's she's worried about the safety of her unborn child and she feels the child is controlling her life and then all ends up she ends up giving birth to the child adrian and it turns out it could be the antichrist bam 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 <laughs> Yes, well, she was, uh, you know, as the movie goes, she was impregnated by Satan. So the, yeah. you know, the child is the Antichrist. And his eyes are all funky at the end. So it's pretty much, you know, I don't want to say definitively a demon child. But yeah, it's, it's a demon child. Mo- most children are yeah. demon children at some point in their yeah. lives. But yeah, uh, but yeah he's, he's pretty much a demon child. Yes, yeah, so Ro- Rosemary gave birth to, you know, the Antichrist. The spawn of Satan. Yeah. It's just another day in New York City. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Apologies to any demons or, you know, other creatures in New York City. You know, if, you know there's many of you out there. Right. So I apologize. I don't want to just, like, lump it all into, you know, the Christian faith because there's lots of other faiths out there with their own demons and monsters and afterlifes and, you know, Satan-type creatures. Yes, and we are inclusive of all of them, Mike. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about how the way that sounds, but... <laughs> I know. All mythical creatures are welcome right, you know, you to go. listen to the podcast. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah, we don't want to leave any mythical creatures out. Right. We don't want to alienate them. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so that was uh, the basics of what happened in the film. So we know how it ended. But what happened after the ending? Mike, what happened on your day after? Okay, well, after a few days, Rosemary and Guy are allowed to return to their apartment under the careful watch of the cast of vets. Rosemary has taken to the young boy, Adrian, and has become the doting mother the coven wants her to be. After a few weeks, when it's clear that Rosemary is dedicated to raising her child, Guy returns to work and sees his celebrity begin to rise even more. Shortly thereafter, he's offered the lead role in a new film by up-and-coming filmmaker Roman Polanski. He accepts, and the money starts to roll in. Flush with wealth and success, Guy tells Rosemary that they should have another baby, to which Rosemary willingly agrees. The next night, Guy and Rosemary settle into bed, but Guy mysteriously falls asleep before they can attempt to conceive. He has a disturbing dream, but he can't remember it the next morning. They try again the next night, and this time, Rosemary smiles a knowing smile while Guy successfully performs his husbandly duties. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Ooh, so lots of bow chicka bow wow. <laughs> You're supposed to be digging into the mysteriousness of it. Oh, sorry, so lots, smile, lots of... Not, lots the, of... not the bow chicka bow pow part of it. Oh, okay, there's lots of dun dun dun. There you go. Yeah, that's mm, more that's So what's going to happen there? And she seems... Rosemary seems awfully, you know, okay with it all. Yeah, well, mm. we'll find out. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, looking forward to seeing where yours goes. Thank you. Well, let's see where yours takes us to start. How about your day after? Okay, Rosemary eventually goes to sleep. Her mind is all over the place after the hideous discovery early that day. The child was left in its crib. But then Rosemary is woken abruptly. She's lying in a brightly lit room as people in white coats rush around. They seem to be shouting at each other about various things she doesn't understand. She's sitting on a strange chair, her head within a large halo-like circle of lights. A woman, whom Rosemary assumes is a doctor, approaches, 
checks her pulse and shines a torch in her eyes. Pupil response is normal, the woman says. Rosemary tries to speak but finds her mouth is dry. The woman raises a glass of water to Rosemary's lips. Technicians work on the strange consoles all around. What? What's going on? croaks Rosemary, her voice barely a whisper. Where's my baby? Hi, Rosemary, says the woman. My name is Dr. Thorne. You were in the New York office of recall. There's been a problem with your memory implant. <laughs> and that's my day after. Oh, I like it. Thank you. <laughs> so, so none of that actually happened is what you're saying. Well, or cons- cons- or p- possibly didn't happen. Well, maybe, you know, there's blue skies on Mars. Who knows? Uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, my, that's my day after. What about your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, nine months later, Rosemary gives birth to a baby girl named Angela. She's the opposite of Adrian in every way. Whereas Adrian is dark-skinned with dark hair, Angela is fair-skinned with blonde hair. Adrian is fussy and difficult. Angela is pleasant and easygoing. Despite their differences, Rosemary dotes on them both, and she raises them both to be the best children they can be. Guy continues to become a bigger star in Hollywood, and the family lives a wealthy life, eventually moving to a big mansion out in the country. As the years go by, the kids continue to grow. Adrian is constantly in trouble at school, acts out at home, and has few friends. Angela gets straight A's, never misbehaves, and has lots of friends. The differences between the two kids cause them to grow apart, and by the time they reach high school, they barely talk to each other at all. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Hmm. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Not sure where it's going, so... uh, hmm. Well, I I promise you it's going somewhere. That's... Thank God for that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, All right. So how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Back in her apartment, Rosemead thinks back to the past few days. The recall people explained how Rosemead had gone in for the classic New York experience but somehow the file had become corrupted during the implant process and horror elements had somehow been introduced. As Rosemary had signed the various waivers, she could do nothing else, but Recall had fully refunded her and erased as much of the, the error as they could. Since then, Rosemary had been getting terrible headaches. She found it odd that she now had vague memories of being pregnant, as she'd never really considered having children. Having spoken to her friends and family on the phone, she could explain the situation as best she could, but she, she kept getting small static shocks whenever she used the phone or other electrical items. In fact, she even got them when she bumped into other people. She stood in the apartment and thought back to what was happening. She seemed to fall into a strange trance and then a, a weird kind of tickle sensation in her head. And then suddenly she heard a strange noise, a baby crying in the bedroom. There should be no baby there, she thought, but that thought was soon pushed down as she moved like an automaton. She couldn't believe this baby needed feeding again. Wandering in this strange trance to the bathroom, Rosemary checked the body in the bathtub. She couldn't recall how the body got there, but it was drained of blood. She would have to get more. Ooh, that's creepy, Phil. I like it. Thank you, thank you. Dark and creepy. Yes. Mm. Okay then, but that's... uh, We'll get to mine in a bit. What's happening then with your long term? Okay. On the eve of Adrian's 18th birthday, he, Rosemary, and Angela stand on the roof of their mansion amidst a raging thunderstorm. Guy died of a heart attack the year before, and Rosemary is pleading with Adrian not to go through with what he's planning. Adrian tells her that it is his destiny, and he raises the dagger in his hand high in the air, ready to plunge it into the chest of his girlfriend, still a virgin, to become the rightful heir to Satan and take his place upon the throne of hell. Before he can complete the ritual, however, he is blinded by a light so bright that it burns his eyes even through the hands he's trying to shield them with. He falls to his knees and burned into his retinas as an afterimage of Angela with a pair of wings protruding from her back. Ah. How, he stammers. Rosemary yells over the raging storm. Guy wasn't your real father, and he wasn't Angela's either. Seventeen years ago, I made a deal with the other side. I hoped I could steer you to the light, but you've thwarted me at every turn. Give this up, Adrian. We can still be a family. Adrian, refusing to believe his mother's words, feels around for his dagger. Finding it, he raises it again to seal the contract that will ensure his ascendancy to the throne. But before he can finish, an even brighter light shoots out from Angela, and Adrian is reduced to a pile of ash. Rosemary falls to her knees sobbing, and Angela collapses. As the rain begins to slow and Rosemary mourns her lost son, a small sliver of sunshine breaks through the clouds and shines on Rosemary. And that's the end. Oh, brilliant. I like that. Yeah, proper battle between good and evil. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, now, I will ending. say, after we hear your uh, long term, I have an after the credit scene. Oh, okay. Brilliant. <laughs> but meanwhile, I want to know what's going on with uh, Rosemary and her imaginary baby and uh, dead bodies. So okay. bring us home, Phil. Okay. The strange techno-organic virus that had been born in Rosemary's head had made its way through phone lines, internet, and physical touch. 
all those infected had felt the call to go out and kill to bring blood back to their homes. The virus had then entered the blood and begun transforming it at a cellular level. The human hosts were compelled to keep going out to kill more people to feed this transformation. Only people in isolated areas away from technology were safe from the virus, but they were hunted down by the hosts. Eventually, the strange creatures born from the blood took their first steps on Earth. A new life form that needed human blood to survive had been born. For those survivors taken to the blood farms, it truly was a hell on Earth. And that's my long term. Ooh, wow. Intense. Thank you. Yeah, so it's, you know, in a way, the Antichrist won. Yeah, I can see that, real. right? Yeah. Right, it was like a, it was like Antichrist through a computer virus. Yes. And yes. The, the, the whole movie of Rosemary's Baby was just the dream that preceded it. Yeah, and basically the idea was you'd have a whole planet full of serial killers. Right, which is your your stock and trade. Yeah, you know, now but now now where do you go from there though, Phil? Now that you've created a whole planet of serial killers, how do you top that? Well, I, I can make. If you mentioned a post credit scene, uh-huh. I I am going to give you a little post credit scene as well. Oh, I like it. Mm. A little tit for tat. Yes. All right. But do you want to? So the credits are rolling. Yeah. <laughs> Those are awfully bubbly credits for the what I just went through. In the, well, it's, in you know, it's because it's because humanity, you know, good one. Gotcha. Or it could be this. Dun, 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 ba, dun, dun, that works too. There you go. Okay. <laughs> a few weeks later, Rosemary is at her doctor's office as she's been feeling a bit ill lately. As she sits waiting for the doctor, she gets lost in her thoughts and memories. She misses Adrian, but at least Angela has recovered, and she remembers nothing of the experience. She misses Guy, even though she had never really truly loved him after the events 18 years ago. Still, it had been over two years since she'd been with a man, and she found herself lonely. The door opens and the doctor walks in, breaking her reverie. Well, the doctor says, turns out there's nothing wrong with you at all, Rosemary. In fact, it's good news. Congratulations, you're going to be a mom again. (sighs) Cut and see. Oh, I like it. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, rumor has it that you have a post-credit scene. Yes. I can't wait to hear it. My post-credit scene, though. In a cabin in the woods, a small group of humans survived. One woman had uh, joined them recently, and she'd somehow survived the virus. She'd managed to shake it off, but she was also pregnant. Then one day, the child was born. It seemed different than the others, but it glowed with a warm light. Ah. That's the end. Oh, I like it. There we go. So we both got a little angelic babiness going in our ending. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you. All right. Okay, well, that is uh, Rosemary's Baby. So those were our endings for that. And uh, next week we'll be back to having two movies with endings. But since we have a lot of stuff to fit in this episode, we're just bringing you one this week. Phil, do you have uh, Rosemary's trivia for us? Yes, well, Rosemary's Baby was born on June 1966, so 666. Uh, Mia Farrow ate raw liver during the film. That was the first scene. It wasn't just like a snack <laughs> right. she had. Can yeah. you get the craft person, the craft yeah. table to get some, some raw liver out yeah. for me, please? This liver's too cooked. It. I want more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Before filming the scene of Rosemary calling Donald Baumgart on the phone, it's the phone booth scene, uh, Mia Farrow did not know who would be speaking the lines. It was actually Tony Curtis on the other end, and in the scene, Farrow showed slight confusion as she tried to place the voice because she didn't know him. And that was the effect that Polanski wanted for the scene, so quite like how that worked out. Absolutely. Uh, that scene was one long, continuous, unbroken take. And Clay Tanner was the guy who played the devil. He was completely naked during his scenes, and he spent hours on top of Mia Farrow. Oh, boy. Uh, when they were finished, he got up, shook Mia's hand, and said, Miss Farrow, it was a pleasure working with you. And Mayor Farrell later said that he was a very lovely man. Well, you know, I mean, what else are you going to say after after you spend hours dressed like the devil and completely naked on top of a famous actress? I I think really that's your only option. Yeah, he was a lovely man. I'm sure he was. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on then because we have Lore to talk about. Uh, Lore is a new uh, streaming series on Amazon Prime based on the mega hit podcast by Aaron Mankey. Now, before we get to our interviews, Phil, we had a Lore experience, which people probably don't know what we mean by that. So why don't you tell them a little bit about what, what that experience was? Yeah, well, basically, at New York Comic Con, uh, where me and Mike were to the week, uh, some of the TV shows and companies, they set up these, like, uh, well, they're called experiences, but they're basically like places you can go into and, well, experience events from the, the, the TV show or, well, for example, we went to the Tick experience, which was a, a, a copy of the Danger Boat from the new series, so we could flick all the switches and things like this. And for the, the law one, it was basically this creepy looking uh, building uh, where you would, uh, we watched a little 
intro video and then we were told there was three doors we had to knock on each door and go in and in, inside each door was a small room with uh, creepy people and you know it was all made to look very strange and dark to fit in with the whole concept of law. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a short haunted house, but in, in each room, rather than jumping out and scaring us, there was actors who were dressed in full costume and makeup and sort of telling us these horror stories that are going to be some of the, that are basis for some of the episodes that are going to be in, in the series. Uh, we got some pictures taken, which we'll share on the After the Ending Facebook page. Um, and then we got some gifts at the end. We got a nice little lore notebook and a, and a flashlight. Yeah. Uh, but it was cool. It was kind of, a, I don't know, about a 10 minute experience and it kind of had the, everything was done up like a haunted house. And uh, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was like a creepy doll, and there was a woman uh, with a room full of mirrors, which uh, when we, we looked into it, our name appeared on the mirror, which I quite like that bit. Yeah, it was a neat uh, a neat sort of, they kind of, you know, use the technology with your badge and everything, and so we, as you looked in the mirror, the, our name sort of like, like spelled out on the mirror, like in a ghostly way, like kind of almost like an animated fashion. It was it was pretty neat. Yeah, it was very well done, and there was the final one was with the guy who was, it's it was like a... A very dark kind of banquet with uh, like eyeballs and fingers and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah, creepy. Yeah, it was good. It was yeah, enjoyable. it was good times. It was a good yeah. way to get uh, psyched up for the lore show, uh, yes. which we mentioned is streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, but then after that, I headed over to the press room and had some very cool interviews to talk about the experience of making the show. Now, it's an anthology show, so the actors were in different episodes, um, but we did speak with some really cool people. Let's start with, of course, the one I was most excited to speak with, and that was Robert Patrick, who, of course, is most famous for playing the T-1000 in Terminator 2. Uh, he also, of course, stars on the CBS show Scorpion and has been in the X-Files, he was a regular on that for a couple of seasons as John Doggett uh, when David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson left. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a Hollywood legend and a favorite of mine. Uh, and he talks at length about taking on this role of this sort of mad preacher type character and lore. Now, I will warn you, there may be some adult language in this interview. So, uh, you know, just be aware if there are any younger listeners around. So here he is, Robert Patrick. I play a pre uh, reverend Ezekiel. His wife dies. He's a respected man of the uh, of the community. Uh, he has a strong flock of uh, followers in his church. He uh, grieves over her. He remarries a widow. She has two kids. They move to Connecticut. They're in the mansion in Connecticut. Spiritualism is is coming into the fold. People are dabbling with it. He hears about it. He's curious about it. Uh, he sees it as a way to possibly communicate with his wife and in his mind prove once and for all God's existence, which is the thing that everyone is trying to prove, even a man of the cloth, because certainty is the thing that drives faith. Uncertainty. You know what I mean? Until we're certain, we don't know. So everything's based on assumption and faith. Such a such a storied career, uh, including Copland, one of the best movies of all time. Um, I agree. What uh, what drew you to this role, and what do you look for in your roles nowadays? I love working. I feel the clock ticking. Uh, I'm trying to get in as many roles as I can before it's all over. I have one purpose. That's to act. Uh, I love acting. I love trying to do as many different things as I can. I'm a lot more confident now, 30 years down the road, and I'm willing to try more and more things. And uh, I want to do the best work I can do, and I still think it's ahead of me, so I'm in pursuit of some sort of elusive, I don't know what the fuck it is, but <laughs> it drives you, you know. And uh, I really do feel like uh, I'm running out of time, and i gotta, I got to keep going and going and going and going. So when Scorpion was on hiatus, I try to find something that will take me out of that and be at the other extreme. Because Scorpion, I don't even know if it's a comedy, I don't know if it's a drama, I don't know what it is. But it's, 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 it's a fun show to make, I'll tell you that much. And um, it's a very unique show, and it's great writing, and I love my character. But I want to do other things, and I want to do really dark things. I want to do really light things. And... Um, one extreme to the other and this fell in and Gail's involved and she's involved with great things and Glenn uh, Morgan's involved with the X-Files and uh, the pedigree of the show's great Aaron Mankey 
this is a unique way to do a show. There's so many different media involved with the storytelling aspect, and uh, I just want to be a part of it. I don't get to do I don't get to do uh, period pieces that often. Put on those clothes, and wear a top hat. Wow. Feel like I should have mutton chops. You know. <laughs> um, it was great. So next, I spoke with Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, she is one of the, the most powerful producers in Hollywood. Uh, she is largely responsible for the success of The Walking Dead. She's produced most of James Cameron's films, and uh, really is just a huge, huge force in the world of movie and television producing. So here she is talking about the experience of bringing lore to the screen. How do you pick your projects? And you have such a, a story career of things. To they they from. speak what? to me honestly. I mean, you know, uh, you only have so much time to tell new and interesting stories, and you know, I, I didn't want to repeat myself. So in this case, it was, you know, being over sixty, doing something brand new and original, and combining mixed media, not only the scripted side but animation and archival footage, to be able to innovate when you're essentially over the hill is about the most exciting thing I can imagine. <laughs> so what are the challenges in trying to take a, a purely audio format like a podcast and turning it into a full-fledged television show? Well, the, the challenges are to come up with a format that will work for any possible podcast adaptation, which is why we came up with animation, because like the beast within, you can't go back to the 1500s and find video or, you know, find anything other than, you know, paintings or engravings. Um, and so that really enabled us to draw upon the animation. Uh, we also wanted archival material to expand when we were talking about animal magnetism, when we were talking about other things, we could, we could use the archival for that. Um, the scripted was something we knew we wanted to do from the very beginning. We knew we, the basis for all these stories are people that we want the audience to care about, to engage with, and, you know, and to experience what was happening through them. It's not like you can go back and do uh, man-on-the-street interviews or go into the crime labs and talk to people. Um, so it was, it was, you know, that was, every episode was scripted pretty much the way that you saw the episodes unfold. Uh, next up, I spoke with Kristen Bauer, uh, best known for playing Pamela on True Blood, and uh, she talks about her role in the show, playing the mom to a doll not unlike a, an Annabelle or a Chucky type of uh, creation. So that was kind of spooky. Here she is talking about that. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Oh, good, good. So according to well, the information we've been given, the show is unscripted. My stuff was scripted. Okay. And, um, you know, I've only done one thing that was totally unscripted. So I saw that in the thing, and I thought, oh, should I tell them that mine was <laughs> written down for me? And so that was classic playing a character fiction. And, and there was no information I could find about the mother of the boy who's haunted by Robert the Doll. So mine felt like just an acting role with a mother who has a very troubled child. And so I didn't have to, like on True Blood, I would always say, I don't play vampire, I don't play immortal, I just play that I love this person. And that's what I, I didn't have to play anything supernatural, I just had to play that I love my kid and something is very wrong. So Amazon Prime and, and similar streaming services are sort of the kind of the new model in Hollywood. Is it anything different about filming a show for them versus a more traditional network? I don't think of it different. And then now I realize these are all going to be released together. And it, and it, is, it, it is different from their perspective. But for me, it's not. It's just exciting for actors. Because back in the day when I started, you had three networks. And then four, you had Fox, and and so storytelling was a limited by advertising, the stories that you could tell and the things you could say, and obviously HBO changed that a lot. And I think it's incredible that there's all these new avenues for interesting ways to tell stories. I mean, the creativity I feel is it, it has exploded with streaming. 
And I've been very impressed with the Amazon shows. My teacher was Jeffrey Tambor, and so I had to watch Transparent, and just, he's incredible. So it's really a lovely thing for actors that all year round, 12 months out of the year, we can find stories to tell as opposed to we used to have pilot season. Three, four months, and if you didn't land something, you waited till next year. Anything creepy happened while you were filming? Any bumps in the night or anything that freaked you no, out? No, I didn't have anything creepy happen. I think I, um, my husband says I'm painfully practical, so I think I'm really hard. Like there could be something really creepy happen, and I would say it's probably seismic activity because of a fault that's 642 miles. I mean, I I just make everything practical. Right. It's terrible for him. Uh, next up, I spoke with Holland Roden, a young actress best known for playing Lydia Martin on MTV's hit show Teen Wolf, and she talks about acting in a very intense episode. Now, you're obviously, we're familiar with the show, as you just explained. Yeah. When they came to you and said, hey, we're going to be a TV show based on a podcast, were you kind of like, what are you talking about? Or did you, were you familiar with it at all? Honey, I the, came like, from scripted MTV. That's not a thing either. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't the first to do that, you right. know? I mean, I'll never forget getting the, the, you know, that audition back then. They're like, what do you mean you're doing MTV scripted? Right. And, uh... I think people are wiser these days where if they hear something new, they're not immediately judgmental. They are actually curious and excited. Right. And so, thank God, we, you know, I think are at least moving towards that direction in, in art right now and te- television and film. And so, when I got, you know, wind of this happening, I was incredibly excited because I'm a podcast lover and um, lore is no exception. So, I, I was excited. I just wanted to be a piece of it and... You know, I'm in a place where I, I have a career, and I think I'm very grateful to be a working actor and a little bit of a name, but it's it's more, you know, I still have to audition. I still have to, to prove myself, and I was so overly overjoyed when I got this role because as an American, um, I don't know if it's talked about a lot, but we don't get to play other, you know, nationalities that often and other accents, and so I was really just grateful to these guys that they gave me a chance and uh, was ecstatic to, to be a part of something like this. And finally, here we are talking to Aaron Mankey, the creator of the Lore Podcast. He was a really cool guy, I have to say, just really uh, intelligent and and passionate about the project. And he talks about bringing Lore to life as a podcast and as a TV show. Lore was—I mean, if you, I don't know if what you've read. Lore was an accident, right? I like I—I I was creating a giveaway to promote my self-published novels, and the giveaway wasn't going to work in the, the PDF format that I wanted it to be in because who reads fifteen thousand words on a PDF on their phone? So I—I I, I almost deleted it, and then at the very last minute, I stopped myself and said, "No, I'm an audiobook listener, so maybe I could record these and." put the mp3s in a zip file and let people download them like that was that was my vision for this um and a a good friend said no this is a podcast you should put it out as as a as a you know a podcast thing an ongoing storytelling experience and i i fought him on it a bit and finally i gave in and just jumped in head first so as the producer of the show what's your what's your role been like in in bringing the show to the screen how involved are you and what are you kind of doing to, to make sure your vision stays true um, I mean, I'm part of the, the whole process, um, you know, in the sense that I'm on email chains, I'm part of the script writing process, I help make decisions, but at the same time, Lore, the podcast, doesn't stop, like, I still have this ongoing production, it's never-ending, um, and I have a team of people on the TV side who are really gifted at what they do, so it's been easy for me to say, I'm going to make sure I still focus on this, I trust you guys to make this, and... Um, but, you know, things like the voiceover, you know, the parts of the TV episodes where there are there's narration by me, they hand me a script and then I say, all right, well, I'm going to rewrite all of my voiceover lines to fit my mouth because, you know, things, silly things like alliteration mm-hmm. looks good on the printed page or on the screen, but when you have to speak three hard C's in a, in a row, that's not fun. So, you, like, I change things like that or words that I just never would have used in the podcast. I might thesaurusize them, you know. Uh, that was excellent. It's uh, some great interviews there. I do like it when you hear the people involved in the in these shows. Uh, and the, the show itself, I've seen the first one, and it is it is creepy. I do like those old stories, uh, you know, and they are all based in sort of truth. And they look at you know how these the stories originated, and I really do like that the way it works. Yeah, yeah, horror so. folklore kind of is where it's coming yeah. from. So yeah. uh, creepy stuff. Check it out. It's a it's a great fit for Halloween. So definitely take a look at lore on Amazon Prime.
Yeah, and of course, the podcast's there as well, so you can uh, go and have a listen to that because there's lots more where that came from. Indeed. All right. Well, there we go. That is lore. Let's move on then to what I'm sure a lot of people have been looking forward to. It's our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, but in this case, it's a special episode, so we're doing a whole decade of Hollywood. It's our top 10 horror movies of the 1990s. Yes, 1990s. I mean, we did 1980s last time, which there was loads of cool classic horror movies. Uh, when doing the one from the 1990s, there was lo- loads of horror movies. I didn't feel there was quite as many classics. No, I, I agree. I, it definitely seems like a, a weaker decade. It picked up a little bit towards the end for me. Um, yeah. But And a lot of the ones that I that I do think of as being classics or the ones that I really love were much more of hybrid films. There's a lot of films on my list that I think fall into the larger umbrella of horror but aren't really yeah, pure yeah. horror films like a lot of the 80s ones were. Yeah, lots of horror comedies and horror thrillers and things like that. Yeah. No, still lots of good films, but yeah, it just wasn't as uh, definitive, I felt, as the 1980s one. Right, I agree. Okay then, yes, so here we go then. The 1990s are top 10 favourite horror movies. All right, so Phil, why don't you kick us off and give us your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is, uh, it's one from 1990, and it's Jacob's Ladder. It stars Tim Robbins, and it's basically about a man who's in the Vietnam War, he comes home, and he starts having strange visions of, of creepy things that shake the heads a lot and he's not sure what's real and what's going on and it builds and builds until you finally find out what what is actually going on and it sort of makes you look at the whole film again in a different light and it's very creepy i remember watching it i wasn't really sure where it was going and it was just i just felt this you just you're with him you're with jacob the whole time just basically just feeling terribly creeped out and unsure what's real and what isn't but a real good, dark, creepy, surreal kind of movie. Yeah, I still need to see that one, actually. It's still one I have not uh, gotten around to, which I know is a major oversight. I knew it would be on your list, though. I, I, I just didn't know where it would fall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's my number 10. What's your number 10? Well, my number 10 is The Blair Witch Project from 1999. Now, I, I know a lot of people are going to groan when they hear that. It is not a film that uh, remains well-loved, it seems. Uh, and I, I have a theory about that. I think there's a, a number of films that don't translate well to home video. And I think The Blair Witch is one of them. So I think for a lot of people who didn't see the movie in theaters, they never understood what all the fuss was about. Yeah. But I saw it in theaters, and it was one of the creepiest movie experiences I've ever had in my life. You know, it's not that it's the greatest movie as a narrative goes, but there's so many things about it that I love. The marketing campaign where they convince people that this was real. Yeah. And then the experience of seeing it in the theaters in a packed house with people who are freaked out like crazy and the sound design of the film, that's one of the things that doesn't translate if you don't have a full surround sound. The sound of the film was so creepy. There were so many just eerie noises. It's very, it's very true that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when I was in the theater, man, I just remember just constantly being on edge because all these strange noises that were surrounding me. It's just such a well-done film in that regard. Again, narratively, it's not the best movie in the world, but it really was a pop culture phenomenon. And, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, it sort of ushered in the found footage uh, era, uh, which I think is for worse, unfortunately. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but it's, it's a cool film, and I do think that in that theatrical experience, it really was one of the creepiest movies I'd ever seen at that point. And I, I, I remember that experience very vividly, and I don't think I ever uh, will not remember it. So to me, it deserves a spot on, on the list solely for that reason. No, that's I, I quite agree. It almost made my list because I saw it at the cinema as well. Totally agree with you. It was, it was a hell of an experience. I think also the fact that there have been so many found footage films since which haven't been very good has sort of, that sort of, you know, diluted the effect of the blur, which people just go, uh, oh God, it's another one of these. So when you think of the Blair Witch Project, you go, oh, it's just like all the others. Right. So you forget. There had been a couple of found footage films before that, but that was the one which sort of right. n- nailed it, didn't it? And just, yeah. just did. It was the one that really creepy. brought it to the mainstream. Yeah. I mean, the ones before that were all much more you know, niche films or didn't get a wide distribution. This was yeah. the one that really sort of opened it up to the, to the masses. It certainly, it came along at the right time. Yes, exactly. But no, an excellent choice. Thank you. Uh, well, my number nine is one I've been mentioned a few times, but it's... Uh, Peter Jackson's 1992 film Brain Dead, or known as Dead Alive, over in the states. Yep. But it's uh, purely on my list just because it's just all out blood and guts and gore, zombies and zombie priests and zombie babies and priests kicking ass for the Lord, as he quotes in the thing and all this stuff. And it's it's just funny. Loads of blood, so inventive in the way you know they just get the lawnmower go through all the the, the bodies and just yeah, just so much blood and gore. 
and that's that's why it's on the list. I've never, I've never found it particularly scary, but it's just for the the sheer scale and inventiveness of the zombies and what he does with them. It, that's why it's on the list. I can understand that. I'm not a huge fan of the film. I think we've mentioned that before, but it's yeah, certainly yeah. I, I I get it. I get it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, my number nine is a different type of film. It is I know what you did last summer. Um, and this is a film, it's not the greatest film in the world. I, I get that, but it, it is uh-huh. a film I really enjoy. And what I like about it is it was sort of the first big screen horror slasher film that came out in the wake of the success of Scream, um, and which, of course, is, is a, a, a classic. And so this was sort of like, a, oh, look, slasher films are popular again. We hadn't really had any in about a decade that had been successful. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, and so they got, you know, it's it's Sarah Michelle Gellar and, and Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prince Jr. and Ryan Phillippe, all of whom were huge stars at the time. And it's just a good old-fashioned slasher flick. It's creepy and it's fun and it doesn't get overly gory. It has a great premise. Um, and I just, you know, I just like it. It's one of those movies I can kind of go back to over and over again over the years. And if it's on TV, I'll watch it. And I just have a lot of fun with it. So that's my number nine. Cool. I've, I only saw it the once, so I don't remember that much about it. But I remember, think, you know, enjoying it. So, right. yeah, but it didn't make my list purely because I've, I've not seen it in a long, long time. Yeah, it came out in 97. So it was the year after Scream. Yeah, my number eight is uh, From Dust Till Dawn, directed by Robert Rodriguez, written by Quentin Tarantino. And we know the one, it's a couple of hitmen, the uh, gangsters, they end up in a bar in uh, Mexico. And the film flips, and suddenly there's vampires. And I just love the fact it just did that, that big flip. You did think it was going to be a gangster movie, and then there was the vampire movie. And again, because this was 1996, the internet wasn't that big a thing. If you did go in that, lots of people would have gone into the film not knowing much about it, apart from the fact it had George Clooney and these sort of named Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. So they go, I want to see it. So you go into it seeing, wow, this is cool, gangsters, what's going on? And then, yeah, when the vampires suddenly appear, it just must have blown people away. Yeah, I'm sure. I wish I hadn't known about it when I, I saw Festival, but I still enjoyed the hell out of it. It was loads of fun, good good creature effects, uh, you know, some creepy goings on when you start thinking about actually this, how it all, you know, these vampires would be there and they've been, you know, just taking all these poor well, poor guys, because half of them, they're all sleaze bags anyway. But, you know, these guys go in there for a beer and stuff, and then they'll get killed by vampires. But uh, an enjoyable horror action movie, if ever there was one. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that movie, so I agree with you wholeheartedly. Excellent. All right, well, my number eight is Child's Play 2 from 1990. Now, here's the thing. This is probably one of the weakest films on my list. Uh, there are definitely some better movies that came out than this that, that didn't make my list, but but I have a real soft spot for this film uh, because it is the it was the second horror movie I ever saw in theaters. Oh, okay. Um, the first was 1989's Shocker, and... Um, I had heard of Chucky. I was familiar with the first film. I don't think I'd actually even seen the first film, though, um, because I really didn't watch horror movies much as a teenager. I didn't really get into them until I was really in my in my early 20s. I went to I got one tickets, I think it was, to a sneak preview of Child's Play 2, and I went to see it, and I just had so much fun with it. It was it was you know over the top, and it wasn't really that scary, and I was all nervous I was going to be scared, but it was really just funny, and I laughed <laughs> through the whole thing. And Chucky's ridiculous, and it's one of those things where you're just like, how can you be scared of this doll? And it, by the ending, it's completely over the top and ridiculous, and I loved every minute of it. So this is a pure nostalgia pick, you know, purely a pick that comes from the heart. It's not a great great film uh but I, I do have a soft spot for it well it's we are doing our favorite films we're not doing the best films we're doing our favorites so it's go. always different but yeah i've it didn't make my list but i've got a soft spot for that that film as well because i saw that when i was living in australia and i saw it in a drive-in theater which i've never right. been to before so there that was go. so cool as well yeah but i remember just enjoying sitting in the back of the uh, the car because it was like a big four-wheel thing we reversed it in put down the back and we just sat there drinking a few beers and things apart from the person driving the car obviously right right uh, but uh and just because as you said, it was silly and stupid and gory, and Brad Dorff as Chucky is just brilliant, mm-hmm. and they're just so, they're just so much fun. The Chucky films. Oh yeah, they really are. Yeah, but no, an excellent pick. Thank you. Uh, well, my number seven is uh, you mentioned it, but what, not in your list. But it's uh, 1996 Scream. Very good. Directed by Wes Craven, and I quite like the fact because it's we hadn't we hadn't had many slasher movies, and the fact that this slasher one came along, and it was deconstructing the slasher film because you had people in there who watched the horror movies. And then saying this is what happens because I always like that when you, you are watching these films, you, you would think, well, these people surely would be going, oh my god, this could be a zombie thing, or you know, this is like alien stuff like that. I love it when those kind of things get mentioned, but the fact that Scream had people actually breaking it down, saying, well, 
you know, you can't have sex, you know, if you just person by themselves on the phone and all the other, you know, slasher movie cliches, which, uh, well, the cliches because they work and it's, you know, and it screams show that they could work again, even when it's being explained to you. Right, And right. I think every, everybody involved, did the cast, it was a killer cast. Everybody was perfect for the roles they were in. Wes Craven was always great at doing horror. And it was just, and the, the scream mask as well was perfect and there were some great kills in it. And the opening sequence of Drew Barrymore, where you think she's the star, but she's she gets killed in the opening sequence. You're going, well, where the hell is this going to go next? I, I loved it. It was such fun. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. I keep Excellent. saying this for lots of these films, lots of these horror films. Well, horror films are fun. Yeah, the good ones especially. They can scare you, but they are, they are still fun because right. that's what films should be. They should be fun. Right, that's my right. number seven. Very good choice. All right. Well, my number seven is a film from 1998, and it is Fallen, starring Denzel Washington and John Goodman. Oh, um, I love that film, yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it's it's again loosely a horror film. It's more of a kind of a suspense thriller, but it definitely has a supernatural element. Uh, Denzel Washington plays a detective. His he watches the execution of this uh, serial killer, and then afterwards, the uh, serial killings start happening again with all of the hallmarks of his. And it turns out that he is hopping bodies, um, and it's. Ah. A, Really, yeah. on my exactly. Side. It's it's yes, really it creepy, and it's yeah. a, it's kind of a slow burn film, but it's 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 still thrilling from start to finish, and it's just got a really neat ending. And Denzel's great in it. John Goodman is great, and it's just one of those films that it was a like kind of a medium hit. Like it did well at the theaters, but it wasn't a big hit. And I feel like that's the director Gregory Hoblet. Um, he also directed Primal Fear and Frequency. I feel like that's kind of where he lives with these movies that were like, yeah, you know, they make enough money. To make some money, but they're never big enough hits. But they're also really good, yeah. Um, and they they find an audience eventually. And so uh, it's just a film I, I really enjoy. Yeah, it did make my list, but I do love that film. It's uh, it's if you haven't seen it, it's well worth watching. Especially, won't go into any more detail about it. But it's got it's got a great chase scene as well down the street. Yes, yes, an excellent choice. And uh, well, my my number six is a Japanese horror film from 1999. Directed by Takashi Maiki, and it's uh, audition, and it's basically this this uh, guy in the middle aged. He he's it's a bit sleazy what he does. He basically sets up these this fake auditions to try and meet a new girlfriend because he's he uh, he's lonely because he's a, he's a widower and he wants to he wants to try and move on in life. So he sets up these auditions, and there's one woman in particular, and that starts off like this film. You know, he's auditioning these girls, and you go, well, okay, uh, and then he basically he tries to he calls this girl, and you see her sitting in this apartment where there's nothing there on the floor apart from her phone. And this this bag, like a bin bag or cloth bag, and the phone's ringing for ages. And I was going, well, what's going on here? And then suddenly the bag moved, and I jumped like anything. <laughs> and from then on, oh, it just got darker and darker. And when she goes, kitty, 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 oh, gosh. Yeah, and I remember watching it just get more and more disturbed and wishing there was somebody else in the house when I was <laughs> I think actually when it finished, I think I called one of my friends on the phone, which I never really do, just to go, hey, yeah, there's everything okay right just to get some human contact yeah Yeah. right uh you know i have to admit i've i've still not seen uh audition and it's because i know enough about it that i can't bring myself to watch it yeah Yeah. (laughs) i know i know enough about what happens and i'm just like oh man i i have never been able to bring myself to to work up the nerve to sit through it so you're a a braver man than i am yeah oh gosh it's creepy yeah Uh, very good choice. Well, my number six is uh, also a slightly disturbing film, but in a different way. And it is 1999's Ravenous, starring Guy Pierce and oh, Robert Carlyle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this was one that sort of snuck up on me. I remember I got the Blu-ray to review a couple of years ago, and I threw it on because I had heard about it. And I had heard it kind of had, you know, I knew people liked it. Yeah. And I was watching it. And I'm like, all right, this is interesting. And it was sort of one of those ones where, like, by the time it finished, I, I was really into it and then like as like the next few days went on I thought about it more and more I liked it more and more you know what I mean it was one of those films that really sticks with you and a lot of films don't necessarily do that Uh, it's basically about this group of soldiers at an outpost in the winter and there's sort of a cannibalism aspect but it's not just about that there's a little more to it than that Uh, I don't want to give anything away obviously but um, Guy Pierce is great Robert Carlyle is great it has a lot of twists and turns and it's just it's a really different film, and I, I really enjoy it. And it's not it's not gory for the sake of gory either. Um, it is also, I believe, the only film on my list that was directed by a woman. So I think that's notable as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I only saw it the once as well. It didn't make my list because I, I remember enjoying it but couldn't remember too much of the details. Right. An excellent choice. I need to watch that one again, actually. Yeah, it's really worth it. It's good. Okay, my number five is actually it's uh, it's two films because they're both excellent films, but as, we, as we've seen already, a few of them don't quite fit the horror one so I, 
It's Silence of the Lambs and Seven. Ah, very good. Because I feel they make a good yet really depressing, you know, double feature. Right. <laughs> but they're both they're both similar kind of stories about you know law enforcement trying to find the serial killer, and the, you know serial killers do really dark and depraved and twisted things. Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins only in it for a few minutes does amazing things as uh, as Hannibal, and then Seven you've got you know got Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and uh, well. If you haven't seen Seven, I won't say who the, you know, the killer is, but you know, it's both of them are just great. These both films stayed with me uh, for a long, long time, and both films are incredibly rewatchable, even though they do go to very dark places. Yes, indeed. And I didn't uh, any other, you know, uh, it was a different kind of list apart from a horror one. They probably would have been a lot higher because they are such, such good films. But uh, for this this list, they're my number five. Sounds good. Well, my number five is one of those films, oh, okay. and it is, it is 1995's Seven, um, for all the reasons that you said. And I'll, I'll just add to it that, man, I remember seeing that movie in theaters and not knowing quite what to expect. I mean, I knew it was a dark thriller, but yeah, you, know, yeah, you just yeah. kind of knew it was like, oh, it's Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. They're hunting a serial killer. And then I saw it, and I watched it, and I was just like, Oh my god, like what a <laughs> depraved movie that is. But so brilliant, but man, it's so creepy. It's it's hard to watch, but it's also hard not to watch, if you know what I mean. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um and I actually ended up seeing it twice in theaters, but and we <laughs> I my I just remember my girlfriend at the time and I took her roommate and uh I think it was her roommate's boyfriend at the time who knew nothing at all about the film. Oh my god. And her roommate was like from like the farms of Iowa and was like oh, had no. like so little real life experience and was just like this nice naive little like girl and we were like oh you should come see seven it's really good <laughs> and uh i don't think she ever forgave us for that so uh, <laughs> uh, I, yeah but uh it's a heck of a film though for sure yeah what's in the box <laughs> right exactly okay my number i four. still say that all the time <laughs> all the time that's one it of my most my yeah. go-to movie quotes yeah there's post for you it's a big box what's in the box <laughs> exactly <laughs> Pizza? What's in the box? <laughs> it's pretty much how my life works. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's, that's cool. Okay, my number four, then, is uh, 1997's Event Horizon. I knew that would be on your list also. Yeah, because we mentioned it before. Paul, Paul, I think we've talked about it at length a few times, actually. Yeah, I think we have. Yeah, Paul W.S. Anderson's greatest film, in my opinion, although you you probably beg to differ because I know how much of a fan of the Resident Evil films you are. I do like the Resident Evil films, it's true. Yeah, but, also, uh, I know, don't I don't love Event Horizon. That's part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But, I don't uh, dislike it. I just don't love it. Yeah, but Event Horizon, a ghost story. You no, know, it's a haunted house, but it's a spaceship, and it's oh, it's twisted and well, we did it. We went after the ending of it, actually, didn't we? We did. That's right. It was yeah. We went after the ending of that back in episode twenty four. Oh wow, that was a while ago. Yeah, we went Event Horizon and Goodwill Hunting. So there's a good double feature. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, they both complement each other so well. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, we. Spoke about it a lot then, but it's. I just love the fact. It was just. I thought the effect. You know, the whole set design, and uh, it just it was all. The ship itself was just horrific. There's. I know lots of people don't like it, but I really thought it was. It was just done so well. Very good. Well, my number four is a, a another slow burn horror movie. It is 1999's The Sixth Sense, starring Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment, who I just met a couple weeks ago. Super nice guy. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it, it's a creepy film. It's so well done. I don't think I have to say much more about it. We went after the ending of that one back in episode 21. Uh, you know, I, I think most people know about The Sixth Sense, and I don't have to say a whole lot about it. I do love the film. I love the twist ending. Uh, I, I think it's just a great, great horror film and a great drama at the same time so that's my number four excellent it's a great good film it didn't make my list purely because i never really th- i've never really thought of it as a horror film i can i can understand yeah, that yeah but i know it's creep it's creepy and it's got things like that but yeah but i can see why you could say it's a horror film you could say it isn't but it's it, yeah. It, yeah i mean i guess i would probably lean on the side of it not being one yeah if i really had to come down to it but it, it sort of seemed to fit into my list so yeah well it's, they can definitely yeah it's definitely worthy of a horror list though right right didn't make quite my, like my list even though i do do really like that film. Sounds good. Uh, my number three then is a uh, 1990s Tremors. Love it. Which had Gail on head producing it. Just so much fun. But it's, again, it could be classed not so much as a horror film, but as like a you know a supernatural comedy or you know sci-fi comedy, whatever. But big worms that come from the ground and eat people, so it fits. But it was the first in the series, which I've I've quite enjoyed. Oh yeah, all all the films, even though the first one is the best one. Yes, of course. Uh, because it's just small town of perfection. I love the fact that it's got my favourite bits of films, you know, especially horror movies, where it's got a small group of people and they're just basically wandering around places and there's people are missing or it's not what it seems and they're trying to figure out what it is and where they're with them because we don't know what's going on either. I just love that that whole concept. Like the start of Aliens when the, the 
Colonial Marines get there and stuff, other other films as well. But just the whole build-up of it where they're just finding bodies and bits of bodies and then when the, the Graboids attack, it's just, you know, practical effects at its best. Yeah. And it's just the whole concept of these worms following, you know, tremors in the ground. It's just so good and it could raise, you know, the suspense levels when they're, they've got to get to that one rock and in the middle of the desert. It's just, yeah, uh, absolutely brilliant film. Indeed. I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, my number three is 1998's Halloween H2O. Um, and I love this film with, with uh, hands down. It is my second favorite of the Halloween franchise after, uh, the original, of course. Um, it's the one that I feel like I like Halloween two a lot also. And we've talked about Halloween three, which is a Michael Myers film, but, but then it went downhill. There was three pretty poor sequels that were very cheaply made. And this was kind of the first time the film had a, a big kind of big screen return and it got everything right that I love about the Halloween film you know it had Michael Myers at his best being creepy and moving slowly and you know the 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 body count is low the gore factor is low you know yeah. it, it undid all of the damage that that uh, you know slasher films had done over the past two decades and really got back to the basics of what made that first Halloween film so creepy you're right because the first Halloween there's, there's no gore no there's only four only four bodies in the film and yeah. there's no gore at all and unfortunately even though it kind of birthed the 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 genre in a way um, I know there were slasher films before it, but it sort of is the the you know yeah, the, the yeah. main one. Uh, everyone else just took it so far over the top, and this one, while it could have done that, it didn't, and it, it really got back to the basics and stripped it down. And um, bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back was was brilliant, and she's terrific in it. And had you know a, a, a cast of you know young pretty people, and you had LL Cool J in there for some comic relief. And I just really loved this film. I, I thought it was fantastic when I saw it in theaters. I was blown away by it, and I've seen it a few times since, and I never get tired of it. It, it is to me aside from the first one it is everything i love about the halloween franchise in one perfect film yeah i know i know what you mean about it it did go back to basics really and was after some those dreadful other sequels that they made yeah it was yeah. a it was a breath of fresh air didn't make my list but no it was i could I, I can see exactly what you mean though and why it made your list thank you my number two then is one i've mentioned a few times before as well this is 1994 it's directed by john carpenter and it's in the mouth of madness very good film yes and it's one man's descent into madness all because he's trying to find an author who owes a book right and you know when you say it like that you go on well how's that scary well you know the book it's very lovecraftian and it's all you know who's real is he just fictitious what's going on sam nail is brilliant you got charlton heston's in the film as well oh so many creepy moments going on as well and it's just yeah once he gets to the town he's been trying to find the author do you read sutter kane and all this stuff oh I just love it. I remember watching it the first time, just it's just not knowing where it was gonna, you know, where it was gonna take me and I'm wishing I hadn't sort of got on the journey because it was, you know, so disturbing in places and you're just going, Well, uh, this is yeah. Everybody in the town, you think, Oh, there's a sweet old lady and then you see, you know, in the shadows she's not actually a sweet old lady and yeah, just lots of nice twists and turns and creepiness and done very well. I like it. You know, it's a movie I enjoy very much, and the only reason it didn't make my list is because it has been a long time since I've seen it, and I just yeah. couldn't remember where my like level fell on it. But it is it is a great flick. Yeah. All right, very good. Well, my number two is one that has appeared on your list already, and it is Silence of the Lambs, um, which I do think is more of a traditional horror story than a horror film, I should say, than The Sixth Senses. Uh, I know it's also mm-hmm. a, like a uh, FBI procedural thriller, but it it does have a lot of horror elements to it. I mean, it does have a you know a killer, and it has the whole Hannibal Lecter thing. But regardless of whether it's a true horror film or not, it's uh, it certainly fits. Um, and once again, not one that I think I need to go into. I, I think most people know Silence of the Lambs is a classic. Uh, I do love it. It's always been one of my favorite favorite films, and um, so that's why it's my number two. An excellent choice. Okay, then. All right, you primitive screwheads. Here's my number one. <laughs> it is Army of Darkness. Very good choice. Yes, thank you. Uh, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, Ash fighting the Deadites going back in time. I mean, what? You don't really. You all know I'm your darkness. It's funny. It's gory. It's silly. It's stupid. It's got chainsaw arms. It's got a car with a great loads of blades spinning on it. And it's got Bruce Campbell doing Ash, one of the greatest horror movie creations, one of the greatest horror movie characters of all time. And it's just so much fun. I remember going to see it at the cinema with my brother and then just watching it when. Uh, when Ash is taken to that big pit and he's going to get thrown into it and he's going, well, what's scary about that? And then they throw somebody else in and suddenly you just have this huge fountain of blood which must go up, you know, two or three floors. It just comes shooting out and you're just there going, this is brilliant and I love it. 
It's just so much fun. It's just one of the greatest comedy horror movies of all time. That's right. It is. I agree. And we interviewed Bruce Campbell uh, and the cast of Ash vs. the Evil Dead in last year's Halloween episode. So you can go back and listen to that if you're also an Army of Darkness fan. Yes. But that's uh, that was my number one. What's your number one? Well, my number one, I am doing something I have never done ever before in the history of all the many, many years of after the ending that we've had. Mm. It's a little bit of a cheat, but there, I have I have a logic behind it. So my number one. <laughs> Hold on. Is this going to be Flubber? No, <laughs> although it could, it would fit very well. <laughs> My number one is a five-way tie. Five-way tie. Yes, okay. and here's why, though. Okay, so. I'll allow it. It is Scream, which is a comedy slasher film, The Frighteners, which is a comedy ghost film, From Dusk Till Dawn, which is a comedy vampire film, Army of Darkness, which is a comedy demon film, mm-hmm. and Tremors, which is a comedy monster film. And so it dawned on me, I was trying to place all these films in my top 10, and I really do love all of them equally. I mean, they're, they're all films, with the exception of The Frighteners, that, that you know either launched or were part of franchises that I love and that I, I consider myself a big part of their fandom, where I've yeah. you know either met stars or interviewed them or you know bought the toys or the shirts or whatever. Um, and I really was having a hard time deciding between them all. And I realized that what ties them all together is the fact that they are all successful horror comedies, which I don't think has been pulled off for as weak as the nineties were for straight horror films. I think they were the best decade for comedy horror films. That's that's an excellent point. Yeah. So, so I love all of those films and I I've talked to think about all of them because they've all made my top tens for the years that they came out. Um, and I think you mentioned all of them on your list just about. So, uh, but that's why I, I sort of cheated, but I feel like they are all kind of this family of movies that have had such a big impact on my fan life for the past 20 years. No, I think I make, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I did it with Silence of the Lambs and Seven because they're horror thrillers. Right. So, yeah, if it, it fits. And I, I totally agree with what you said. Yeah, they are all brilliant horror comedies. And like The Frighteners as well. That almost made my list was back and forth because that's another great one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they all have a... They're all wildly different, but they all have that same kind of feel. They really do. You know, they're yeah. all really fun films where you're 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 scared, but you're laughing at the same time. And you know, some of them are more scary than others, but they're all just. And like I said, they're all, with the exception of the Frighteners, all parts of franchises that I I love. You know, I've watched every Scream movie. I've watched all the From Dust Till Dawn. Even the the, the sequels weren't that good. I've watched them all. Yeah, I love yeah. the whole Tremors series. You know, uh, Ash became a TV show. Or, you know, Army of Darkness became Ash versus Evil Dead. They're all just things that I, I get to continue being a fan of. So to me, they all kind of landed on the same at the same spot on the list. Yeah, and if you were that, those five films as well, if you're only going to watch five films on Halloween or on yeah. Halloween, yeah, they'd, exactly. be, they'd be great ones to put on. That is a, a pretty awesome marathon of horror films, if anybody yes, wants yes. to uh, to dive into that. that yeah, I, think, yep. I don't think you can go wrong. But I think as a whole, there was uh, they're, they're both very good lists. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of similarities as I expected yeah. there would be, but yeah. But there was a, there was a few few which were bubbling under, such like a couple of Stephen King adaptations, like Misery and the Dark Half, which I always enjoy watching. Yeah, yeah, I like both uh, of those. Stare of Echoes, I quite like that Kevin Bacon film as well. Mm, because uh, interesting. That's, I'm not a fan of that film. No, it's, I think mainly because when I went to see it, I'd, I was one of the few times I didn't know anything about the film. Right, right, right. So I find out, you know, if I don't know, and often that can just. It hits you a bit more, and you go, "Wow, okay." Yeah, I didn't know what was going. And uh, Nightbreed, which it's yep. one of those films when I watch it, I always go, "Well, do I like it or not?" I'm never quite <laughs> sure, but I love all the fact, you know, the 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 creature effects and the practical effects and the prosthetics. Right. Oh, and uh, also arachnophobia because oh, I remember yeah. watching that with my dad <laughs> and my brother, and my mum wouldn't watch it, and she's she was. Uh, she crept in there when we were watching it and threw this rag on my dad and my brother who were sitting on the center <laughs> tea. And the two of them just shot up into the air. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, that was arachnophobia creeped me out. But, That's a good uh, one. I like that movie. Yeah, there, I had a few kind of honorable mentions as well. Uh, you mentioned Misery and Nightbreed. I also really like Needful Things, which is a Stephen King one about the oh, devil yeah, about moving to one. Maine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare I liked a lot because it brought Freddy Krueger into like kind of the real world. And Wes Craven starred as himself. And yeah. Heather Langenkamp from the first movie starred as herself. I remember enjoying that yeah, one. I, I like yeah, I like that one a lot and, uh, and anaconda which is just a fun you know oh, yeah. giant yeah. snake movie i do i do like those a lot so uh yeah john voight doing the best you know oh yeah glare kind of thing he does yeah yeah it was, it was a lot of fun so yeah some good it was like i said it was a, it wasn't the greatest decade for our horror films but there was a lot of fun movies still yeah nonetheless. yeah but uh if you want to get in touch and let us know what your favorite horror movie is from the uh, the 1990s then you can drop us a line 
on our Twitter or Facebook page, or you can email us at uh, afterthending at verizon.net. So always happy to hear from you, and we read everything that you do send over. Indeed we do. All right, well, that was our top 10 horror films of the 1990s, a fun list, I think two fun lists there. And um, that's going to start to wrap things up for this episode. So, Phil, why don't you tell people what they can expect next week? Next week, we're back to our regular kind of episode. We'll be going... After the ending of a couple of comic book movies, because Thor Ragnarok is either in cinemas, if you're in the UK, when this episode debuts, or it's going to be out in a couple of days in the US. But we're going to be doing 2011's Green Lantern, which was a really, really good film. <laughs> if, uh, well, maybe we'll have some interesting opinions to share well, about if, it next yeah, week. Well, maybe, maybe it'll be time for Mike's controversial opinion of the week to make a comeback. Oh my crap. Maybe, uh, maybe I don't know. We'll see. That for Green Lantern. If oh that's God, not, if that's not a reason to tune back in to see what I have to say, then I don't know what yeah. is. I want to think I might tune in for that one. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. To to be fair, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I'm going to rewatch it, so I might not have a controversial okay, opinion. Yeah, well, uh, I might end up with the same opinion as everyone else. But well, you could just always use this this my reaction now for what you have you say next week. Really, really, <laughs> what, really? Okay, so it's going to be 2011's Green Lantern, and. Dick Tracy from 1990. That was the one with Warren Beatty and Madonna and Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah, should be fun. We'll also be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1987, so there's bound to be gold in that one. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds like an episode that I personally cannot wait for. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so uh, please make sure you join us then. But that is going to do it for us for now. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Yeah, well, we uh, were lucky enough to talk to, uh, or I was lucky enough to talk. Let me do that again. Yeah, well, at New York Comic Con a few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to speak to some of the cast and creators of the upcoming, or actually now. <sighs> yeah, currently streaming, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, at the New York, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. Well done. Thank you. I don't know why I said thank you. You no, were telling me I did well done. You were No, it was, it was well done, sorry. It was well done. The <laughs> I was like, thanks. All I did was intro the interviews. I do that all the time. It was a good intro. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Try uh, the fish. Good to see we're continuing our trend of saying absolutely nothing, but still having 10 minutes of recording time. We've been, we say a lot, but it has no meaning. <laughs> Some could argue that's our entire podcast. <laughs> uh, Phil, is there any, uh, you have any, uh, any uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm Aaron Mankey, and my podcast started two years ago, and it's got millions of listeners and its own TV show. How did that happen? Please don't make sure make sure that bit's not in the episode. <laughs> we went by, back. Um, we went behind, not behind the ending. Jesus. Okay. Be, be, what are we doing? You got a spin-off show? I don't know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've mean to break it to you, Phil, but behind the ending, okay. behind the ending. It's it's a little more adult themed, if you know what With I mean. Mike Spring and not Phil Edwards. Yeah, it's more. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took a second to catch that one. You see cool. what I did there? Yeah, I like yeah. it. There you go, Gail Ann Heard. We just heard from her. That's ah, right. No pun intended. Yeah. Hey. Uh, but yeah, we you know, Gail Ann Heard from her. Hey. Okay, I'll stop now. I'm trying to think. So for the Reba McIntyreity of the show, you've. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, that was poor one. Now. Oh. Well, Lordy, <laughs> I just literally felt a pain in my chest. I don't know what to have for breakfast. I might have some Kevin Bacon. Oh, no, boy. No. I'm going to try and Fred ward off all these evil vibes <laughs> that you're sending at me right now. Oh, that's just so Michael Gross. <laughs> Damn it, now I can't think of anybody else who's in that film. <laughs>